Hi, and welcome to Connections, the Altice USA podcast. As a company, Altice helps people simply connect with the things that matter most to them. On this podcast, we'll look to connect our listeners to people and ideas at the leading edge of the media and technology worlds. It's as simple as that. I'm Doug Sertan, Senior Director of Corporate Communications here at Altice USA, and I'll be your host. For more information about this podcast or to share your comments, check us out online at alticeusa.com or on Twitter and Instagram. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking with Sarah Unger, who is the Senior Vice President of Cultural Insights and Strategy for Civic Entertainment Group, where she helps brands better understand what trends and forces are driving consumer behavior. She's done similar work for Viacom in the past, has worked with dozens of large, well-known brands throughout her career, and was recognized by Forbes as a standout talent in the marketing and creative industry. Check her out on Twitter at Sarah Jane Fab, but not until you're done listening in to what she has to say with us. Let's get to it. Well, listen, Sarah, first tell me a little bit about Civic Entertainment for anybody who might not be familiar with the brand. Give us give us the elevator speech. Sure, sure, sure. And I'm new to Civic, so uh, if I get it wrong, Civic still employ me tomorrow. Um, but I, Civic's an amazing place, uh, and I was super, super drawn to this agency, not only because of its name, Civic, which stood out to me, um, but uh, just its brand ethos and mantra. And Civic was created by people who had their backstory and background working in government, um, doing large-scale experiential activations for the mayor of New York. And they took this and translated this ability to build bridges between brands and communities um, to a whole nother client set. So Civic is Civic's bread and butter is doing um, big experiential activations that really um, connect brands to the community around them and doing it in a meaningful, authentic way. And so I'm part of the cultural insights arm of Civic. You know, even though you're new to Civic, you've been in this game for a little bit. I mean, how do you... Just a minute. <laughs> how do you do what you do for a living, right? How do you mine and, and, and stay on top of the trends that are happening out in the consumer world and try to figure out how to how to make action, you know, how to take action on them if you're a brand. Well, having eyes and ears helps. <laughs> but I think I think it has to come from first of all you have to love this and have an innate appetite for it because Linda and I talk about this um, as well. We're we're really always on. You have to constantly be mining and for some people that may not be enjoyable for your brain to never turn off in this regard, but I think um, I think from a young age, I realized that I took great pleasure in uh, seeing one input and connecting it to a totally disparate output. In general, I always say to people who are interested in cultural analysis and insights, like you have to be absorbing and curious at all times. So being a child of the universe is basically the number one skill set. But make sure that you have your sort of uh, go-to ways and methods of getting information about the outside world. Fortunately, the internet is the great equalizer when it comes to this stuff. There's no lack of information to absorb at any given time. I think uh, sometimes we run risk of using that as our only input. Um, as we know today, not all the information on the internet is reliable, and also it's equally important to be present in the world because um, that is a much more sort of jarring and authentic experience um, in many in many ways. So I try to kind of marry being out and about in culture with making sure that I'm um, staying topical in terms of the, you know, different newsletters, 
websites, platforms that I engage with and um, kind of matriculating those inputs um, based on our client set at all times. And, you know, after you do this for uh, quite some time, you tend to become pretty good at doing it quicker and quicker. You can analyze more and more inputs until it becomes kind of second nature. So um, I still can't believe that we are fortunate enough to get paid for something that I feel so innately passionate about. Um, but it's also quite hard. So I understand why we're paid for that, it. That, that was so eloquently put. Uh, so your job you. isn't just to like hang out on the internet all day. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> but I think that's a lot of people's jobs nowadays. Um, and, and you know, I think even when I worked at Viacom, I couldn't believe that I had such good fortune to, you know, work at a company where watching Jersey Shore is part of the job. But, um, but yeah, I, I think you should work in fields that you're passionate about. You spend a whole lot of time at work. It might as well be meaningful, right? Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. Well, listen, spe- speaking of being online, you know, um, as a company like Altis USA is, and we spent a lot of time thinking about and helping people get online. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear from you a little bit about um, what what is going on in terms of consumer behaviors online. Are there are there larger trends outside of people spending more time online um, that you're seeing that you think are of particular interest? Yeah, of course. Um, on a macro level, I think the way people spending time online has disrupted our culture for better and worse, but I feel mostly optimistic about the progress that it's um, it's forged in our society. I would say, uh, you know, I, to start at the macro level, as I mentioned, I think um, people spending more time online has served to kind of globalize our culture. I think um, when you look at time online spent as a connective tool and connective tissue it's incredible to me to look and see what the internet and um, uh, even when I think you know the first thing when you said online mobile always pops up first to me because for a lot of emerging markets mobile is really leading in terms of usage even more than you know desktop or web consumption I mean it's amazing what time online has done in Africa when you look at mobile banking adoption of banking compared to U.S. mobile banking rates, or even when you look in other countries and WeChat and WhatsApp and how that's connected people who have been offline for years. Um, I think, you know, right now in culture, what we're struggling with is that for any type of progress like this, there's a flip side to progress. And so, um, you know, when we think of online uh, behavior and tech, um, it's usually accompanied by um, a sense of optimism, and I love that. It's why I'm so drawn to this space, but I think we're increasingly having issues um, that have to do with safety and responsible online usage. And so I think sort of looking at the two sides of that coin in parallel path as we look at online behavior is a really, really interesting juxtaposition and dialogue to be having, especially from a consumer perspective. Um, consumers are, you know, looking to the internet for more and more um, than they ever used to before, and that's an amazing and profound thing. But that also means that it has a 
outsized role in people's lives and with that comes a sense of sort of responsibility and safety um, that we may not have considered in the past so those parallel narratives I'm finding very very intriguing interesting you know I'm, I'm sure there's all sorts of data that would answer this question for me but I'm, I'm interested to hear what your take on it is you know when we talk about the internet, right, there's kind of the, um, the phrase Facebook is the internet. And I think if you think of the origins of Facebook, you know, it was it was truly social, right? It was let me connect with my friends, let me share what I'm doing, let me share some pictures. You know, if you think about Facebook today and their focus on content and media and certainly video in the last handful of years, um, and you look at things like all of these companies that are going direct to consumer with with um, with streaming apps, you know, media consumption, at least in the press narrative, plays a big role in what people are doing online. Some of the early examples you just described of of kind of um, the positive impact that the online culture is having on our world around banking and and you know accessibility to information, especially outside of this country. Where do you find the rub between, I guess, the, the the good stuff that the internet can bring to our culture versus, hey, are people really just spending their time watching cat videos and <laughs> you know, um, you know, what whatever else Facebook Watch is pushing out? I mean, kind of, what what is the reality of what people are doing online? Right. Um, well, I think. <laughs> It's funny, the question you asked and the way you phrased is almost very voyeuristic, which I think lends itself well to kind of, you know, one of the amazing things about the internet, it allows us access to information that we never could access before. And so um, I think our fires of curiosity have been stoked since we um, have the ability to mine for information in increasingly profound and expansive ways. But I think uh, to answer your question about how people are spending their time online, um, You are right in that the proliferation of information and services, most specifically media and content online, can be overwhelming to the consumer. I feel it, and I tend to approach things as a consumer first because that grounds us in the authentic reality of the customer experience, and, and I feel that. There's so much out there to watch, but I think agnostic of platform, um, people follow good content, right? And so that kind of tends to be my number one governing principle is like, if the content is good quality, people will find it. We saw with a lot of streaming services, all it really took was that kind of one show to get people to be like, okay, now I'm gonna pay for Hulu, thank you. Handmaid's Tale was was enough for me. And so uh, I think when you kind of keep that in the back of your head, right, that quality content is like the number one, you know, sort of metric for how people will spend their time and attention. Um, and quality, by the way, can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. If you look at YouTube, if I'm looking to figure out how to do my makeup better, watching 10 videos in a row of various, um, beauty influencers showing me how to put on my lipstick can be high quality content to me because it's instructive and detailed in the you know way that I'm looking to get answers so if you can 
figure out high quality content, then second, the platform and sort of the interface that people access content needs to be seamless. People don't want to think about how they access their content. They just want to get the good content. And so I think it's been very interesting to track consumer behavior because I think the industry tends to waffle back and forth a little bit with, you know, do people want everything in one place or they find getting things in like 200 different locations as long as it's affordable, right? And I don't know if we know the answer yet. I think it actually breaks down based on, you know, demographics a little bit. Young people, for example, I find are way more willing to um, seamlessly jump between apps and have like 10 different platforms open at any given time. Um, Older people tend to gravitate towards one platform just for ease and peace of mind. Um, So I still think number one, when we look at how people are are consuming things online, it tends to be determined by the quality of the content. And two, certain sort of table stakes that the platform and interface have to be a pretty seamless experience. Um, I think right now the industry is sort of like testing the ends of the spectrum, seeing like how many services is too many, what's gonna be the thing that's gonna make people say, okay, enough of this, I'm you know reverting back to just like, three subscriptions so since you opened the door i'm gonna walk right through it let's go let's talk about cord cutting yeah um which which more broadly speaking in terms of understanding consumer behaviors i'd love to hear kind of some more top line stuff but specifically in response to what you were just saying you know the um the potential for us to live in an ecosystem where the um the ott app world you know, uh, delivers so many opportunities and really provides a lot of um, uh, fragmentation around where consumers can get whatever they deem quality. Mm -hmm. I mean, you talked a little bit about kind of really being in the infancy and a lot of testing and learning for that. Um, I mean, based on what you understand of consumers, you mentioned younger consumers Mm -hmm. maybe have more of an appetite to go in and out of different things. I mean, where do you see that all going? You know, the, the potential to have to pay for, and, and not necessarily making it about finances, but the, the potential to have multiple, you know, points of entry for various content. Right. I mean, what's happening today? What do, what do you think about all that? I mean, I think services that can somehow uh, be unifiers for multiple entry points of content are great. So, um like me personally, I have high hopes for Apple TV being my one-stop shop for all this stuff. That's me just as a consumer because I organize my life through the Apple system. But um, in general, I think um, I think competition in the industry is a good thing. I don't think it means that you know cable TV doesn't have an audience. It's still a huge industry. Obviously, I spent the last few years working on it because I believe in the power of um, cable providers and their expertise in sharing really, really good, profound content with consumers. And I think they have the ability potentially to be some of the best pioneers in the space. And that was something I found profoundly exciting. Um, similarly, I do think that other services popping up have shown us that there are alternates in different ways to share this high quality content, especially in the digital age. So I kind of think there's room for innovation from everyone. It just depends kind of who gets there first. Um, When you look at cord cutting trends, certainly you do see a trend, but it's not like 
it's not overwhelmingly huge. There's still a lot of people who gather around um, live television, especially when it comes to sporting events and tent poles. Um, and so I, I think there's there's room for both sides. I can just speak to personally, um, when you look at cable and TV, even the way it's packaged as a consumer, like in New York, it, when I pay for internet, it doesn't actually cost me that much to have cable attached to my package. Um, I'm mostly paying for internet. The cable's like 10 bucks more a month. So cutting the cord for me wouldn't even save me that much money, which I don't know if a lot of consumers realize that. So we've been talking about online behavior and technology. Um, you know, kids in tech is, is a really interesting topic. Um, I think as a parent myself, it kind of starts a little bit with how old or how young, you know, what, what age is appropriate to give your, your child technology or, or let them be online. In terms of what you're seeing in trends of what kids are doing and maybe even the more interesting question is how brands are responding to that and trying to market, whether it's directly to children or you know, still going through their parents as a, as a conduit. I mean, kind of what, what are you seeing in the space with kids? Sure. Attack? Well, and I have to ask you before I even get into that, what did you decide? What age was the right age to give your kid kids? So my six year old, my oldest, um, isn't at the point where having his own technology, I think is really appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he has friends, who have kind of their own quote-unquote iPad or some type of device. Um, you know, he's he's not full-blown, like, into it yet, right? I mean, you know, once in a while, Angry Birds, like, catches his eye. You know, he does have a couple of YouTube um, shows and characters that he likes equally as much as he likes, you know, Paw Patrol and Transformers. So he's not he's not in it. You know, as I read articles. Thank you for naming two Viacom franchises. <laughs> Paw Patrol, um, Nickelodeon, Transformers. I'm, well, I'm, I'm just looking. I'm just looking for for free stuff. So uh, if you know anybody, but um, you know, you read these articles about kids who, hey, my kid doesn't watch TV anymore. Right. Like he's just on Netflix or or YouTube. And Netflix, I feel like, I mean, Netflix is scripted programming. So whether you're getting it from TV or whether you're getting on Netflix, to me it's kind of the same thing. But the YouTube, like the unboxing videos, like yeah, you know, he'll watch some of that, but he's not fully into that. So we're not at the point where he's certainly asking or he's saying, hey, my friends have X, Y, and Z. So um, I don't really have a good answer for you. He's just waiting for you to make him an unboxing influencer. (laughs) Next time you give your kid a gift, film it, and um, an alternate career will surface. (laughs) But no, listen, one of the things I I appreciate as a relatively younger parent is that um, how fast they grow up, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know if it's seven, I don't know if it's ten, but he'll reach an age faster than I probably... Uh, would like to admit today where we're going to start having those questions. Right. I mean, to circle back to your initial question, I think when you look at kids and technology, you know, what occurs to me is the profound opportunity and also the sense of responsibility that comes with it. We mentioned earlier in our discussion how those conversations have to be had in parallel path. One can't happen without the other. Technology is, you know, at its core, an intensely optimistic tool, right? The profound impacts for childhood learning and growth and development are amazing, especially when you look to emerging markets, right? But then you also have to think, 
um, for the child brain and for the you know sense of self-awareness and um, confidence that comes with it when you start integrating social networks and and the pressures of social networks into it you have to you know think about for kids when you give them technology what are you using it for what's the motivating principle is it ultimately um, as a parent are you giving your child an iPad because you need to cook dinner and you just want them to be distracted and if so and that's a totally realistic thing then can you give them content that's good quality that's kind of helping them expand and learn and grow in the interim is your kid using a phone because they want to connect to their friends in a more meaningful way or are you using it as a way to communicate with your child when you're not there and FaceTime them when you're traveling for business. So I, I think um, when we look at kids and technology, we have the benefit of kids being ultimately much more comfortable with technology from basically day one. So we can use technology with them to achieve a variety of things. I think as a parent, you sort of have the um, responsibility to figure out uh, how it fits into the cadence of your child's life and what that right rhythm is, which is you know why I was curious to see how you approached it. Um, one thing I think think with children in general, you know, when you look at what's going on in culture right now, um, when you see things like gamification, for example, being a huge um, uh, opportunity to engage with kids because gamifying things really uh, catches their attention. Certainly you have game platforms like Twitch and Minecraft, for example, dominating the psyche of kids when it comes to gaming today. But I think the implications for that are profound beyond the world of gaming when it comes to learning and technology and education. So I think, I think um, you know, we can look at kids' interest in tech and figure out how it can be sort of more altruistically used for helping um, the next generation. I also think one thing that excites me is um, when you look at Gen Z being an innately um, entrepreneurial generation, smart in how they approach entrepreneurialism, sort of guarded in how they approach entrepreneurialism, having seen the pitfalls of the you know millennials who preceded them. But um, I think uh, being online, technology, those are all tools in the entrepreneurial toolkit. And so you see young people um, developing their own apps. Um, and businesses and ideas and ventures and being able to act on them in a way that past generations might have had a harder time doing or might have had to wait until an older age to do so. So those so, are two things. So mostly a positive then for, for kids in tech, I guess, with 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 guardrails that parents are Right. It De- depends what you're using it for. And I think... Um, I think also, I mean, you had mentioned in one of your uh, sort of uh, themes in the questioning about advertising to kids and using tech to advertise to kids. I mean, that was, you know, there's laws in place for that reason. So responsible advertising is more important than ever. Um, I think brands can authentically play in the space as long as they're doing so in a way that feels natural and innate to the brand and feels additive. So um, when you're talking to kids about technology, you can talk directly to kids. I think you should loop parents into the conversation um, because uh, ultimately when you can speak to the whole family especially when it comes to content if you can appeal to kids great if you can have a product that warrants co-viewing even better awesome switching gears to uh, to our final point here let's talk a little bit about the news and media 
um, and what's going on in that world. Um, You know, I think the trend today in the media world is to combine the distribution and the content at huge scale. Um, Specifically here at Altice USA, you know, our content play is really focused on on news. And uh, as part of that, News 12, hyper-local, is doing better than ever. Tell me a little bit about what you think or what maybe you're seeing from from consumers on the importance that local news could play in today's world where, you know, on a national or international basis, there's so much complexity and variables around fake news and politicized news. Um, I think it's fair to say a lot of people are being turned off by, by that approach. But, you know, just the value that local news and as you know as local as that means whether you're talking about your wider dma or if i'm talking about you know um you know uh massapequa long island sure. kind of where does local news fit in do you think right. for consumers today right in your orbit and i think when you say local news to me what i think about when i kind of think on the macro scale of the implications and how that can impact people the word community comes to mind so Community is really, really important right now. Um, Whether or not we're talking about the past election and how that unearthed sort of the massive seismic divides in America that we may not have realized existed, you know, the bridge to that, the anecdote to that is a profound sense of community and bridging communities together on an increasingly, you know, macro scale. If you look at Facebook and Facebook's recent mission and how they are focused around community, you're seeing that the focus on local through that, wanting to connect people together who live in proximity to each other, who can actually meet up in person and have an impact on something. So I think when I when I think about that in light of the local news offering, it's exciting. It's exciting for local news providers because um, you have a chance to communicate and actually um, share information that can result in action more than, say, other platforms. Um, you know, often when we look at the appetite for news, and I know there's been a conversation about how much are people actually turning on their TV every night at 6 p.m. and watching news when they go home. So statistics aside, people crave news. They're just looking for it in increasingly diverse and varied platforms that feel convenient to them. So I think the more that local news can share super relevant information in relevant ways, maybe a typical, a traditional, um, the more continually engaged it can become. And I think um, when we're, you know, looking to experiences and the type of experiences people want to have, we had a conversation earlier about experiential and what role that plays in your marketing mix, but also in people's lives. Um, there's a big lifestyle play that I think local news can have as well beyond just um, politics and the hard-hitting stories of the day. Um, and I think uh, local news has a unique angle in having a much better read on the community and the experiences that are surrounding any human individual. Awesome. Well, this great. was fun. Did you have fun? I had a great time. That's that's great to hear. This was fun, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining Thank us. Thank you.